Today on Blue 58, the Packers have completed their first round of roster cuts, trimming seven players while adding two more. But that's hardly the biggest roster news of the week. A couple of big names came off the physically unable to perform list, and we should talk about their impact. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. And I'm happy because I come bearing good injury news for once. We'll talk about the Packers' positive developments as it pertains to the physically unable to perform list in a second. First, I wanted to draw your attention to the very fine website, acmepackingcompany.com, at which I have written an interesting article with my colleague Tex Western about one of the newer members of the Packers team, I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but this new robot football throwing machine, uh, the Seeker. You may have seen pictures and videos of it going around on um, on social media. It's the new replacement for their defective jugs machine, and I caught up with the guys who invented the machine and um, brought it to Green Bay and now are helping the Packers integrate it into their practices, uh, just learning a little bit more about what it is, how it works, and, and all that sort of stuff. So check that out as well. But We have some more pressing issues to discuss than just robotic gadgets and things like that because the Packers completed their first round of roster cuts this afternoon, getting down technically to 84 players. There's still one more move on the way because they're surely wanting to get back up to to 85 as long as they can. But they've trimmed seven players from their roster and added two more. Let's start with the cuts. The first one out of the gate, a real bummer, Randy Ramsey, who tore up his ankle something awful last August and has just never really made it all the way back. Just a, a multiple torn ligaments in his ankle, a broken fibula on top of that. Just really feel for the guy because he was in a really good spot last August and it just has not worked out for him to get back to where he was. And it's a shame that that's the way things go sometimes, but that that's it for him, it looks like. Cole Schneider was the next one that broke. Uh, really just dealing with too many bodies on the offensive line there. There are other guys who do what he does. Same with Dante Vaughn, the defensive back. There are other guys who have similar skill sets on top of him. Ellis Brooks, a linebacker, same kind of story. Uh, There's just too many guys ahead of him on the depth chart. Quay Walker really, really is taking opportunities away from lower depth chart guys, and that's, that's why you take a guy in the first round because he's something special physically. Um, you end up bumping those low-end guys off the roster. Getting into the slight surprise territory, B.J. Baylor, who had the biggest play of the night for the Packers in their first preseason game with a big, long uh, 68-yard catch and run, um, he, he has shown the door, and I think that has something to do with Tyler Goodson's performance. We'll talk about him in a second when we uh, recap that first preseason game. But uh, it's looking like a, a more and more stacked running back room, and, and the, the the musical chairs have have bumped Baylor out of there, especially with Dexter Williams back in town for the Green Bay Packers. George Moore, another not-so-surprising release, I thought, of the undrafted free agent lineman. He had a pretty good shot. Numbers are are a problem, um, especially on the interior for the Packers uh, this year with guys like Elton Jenkins coming off the physically unable to perform list. Hey, that's good news. And we're going to say that like 40 times in this episode. Just good news on the injury front. A final surprise, or final cut, actually, rather, is uh, Dominique Daphne. And I saw a couple people online calling this a surprise. Is it really a huge surprise? Maybe not so much a surprise that he was cut, uh, more as a surprise that it happened right now. Because the Packers, while not exactly loaded at tight end, 
have added two new ones recently, and that probably contributes in large part to Daphne's release. They just think they can get some good things elsewhere. On top of that, you've got a guy like Elise Mack, who is probably a better athlete than, than Daphne and a more traditional tight end, looking like he's uh, making some progress on special teams. He was uh, on the Packers starting kick return unit during their um, first preseason game. So that bodes well for him. Um, Daphne just looks like he's on the outside looking in. I do wonder if Matt LaFleur is going a little bit away from this F-back sort of construction that he's had his first three years on on the or as the Packers head coach. It, it's basically the Packers version of a fullback. It's really a tight end fullback hybrid, an H-back you could call it. Whatever Josiah DeGuara is, Matt LaFleur has made an effort to have more than one of that on the Packers roster. And for the past couple of years, Daphne was the second version of that. With Daphne gone, DeGuara is really the only guy like that on the roster. And I wonder if the Packers make a move there in the future or um, just go away from that sort of construction entirely. I think it's it's worth thinking about and worth just keeping in the back of your mind. One of those tight ends the Packers have added recently was the USFL's Sal Canella. We've talked about him already, but also joining the Packers this week. Claimed off of waivers is Nate Becker, a six foot five inch, two hundred sixty four pound former undrafted free agent, roughly house sized individual at six four two sixty four, pretty big, uh, even for a tight end. He was an undrafted free agent back in twenty twenty. Started his career with the Lions, didn't spend a whole lot of time there. He ended up on the Bills practice squad for the twenty twenty season, and made it to the field for one game. Played thirty snaps on offense that day and four on special teams, but recorded zero measurable stats. Athletically, obviously, he's pretty big. He didn't test super well at Miami of Ohio's Pro Day. Had a 5-1, 40-yard dash. Pretty good jumping numbers, 35-inch vertical at 257 pounds at his uh, has Pro Day. That's nothing to sneeze at. Production-wise, um, catching the ball is not his game. He's more of a blocker. Uh, his career year at at uh, Miami was 13 catches for 154 yards and a touchdown in 2018. Uh, in his official Miami of Ohio bio, they talk about that being a, a career season for him. Uh, well, I mean, we can't all be uh, big downfield producers at the tight end position, which is fine, because the Packers kind of need a guy like him. They need another guy who can be like Mercedes Lewis. It's supposed to be Tyler Davis in theory, but he didn't have a particularly good showing uh, last Friday. We'll see how he does next time around. Also joining the Packers this week, Ramiz Ahmed, a kicker, six feet tall, 190 pounds, played most recently in the USFL, 14 of 22 field goals while there, 7 of 10 on the extra points. He also threw a touchdown pass in 10 games for the Pittsburgh Maulers. One touchdown pass in 10 games, all of those stats over 10 games not a touchdown pass per game for 10 games, which would be a little bit unusual. He has had a bit of a journey to get to this point. 
uh, from Acme Packing Company via Justice Mosqueda. Uh, he writes, Ahmed's college career was unusual as he did not play football for his first two years out of high school. He was a member of the University of Nevada football team for the two years after making the team as a tryout player before his junior season in 2017. He would win the full-time kicking job as a senior in 2018, going on to connect on 15 of 20 field goal attempts and 40 of 45 extra points. Big reason he didn't play football those first two years is because he wasn't even going to school at Nevada. He went to UNLV and then transferred to Arizona State before transferring again and ending up at Nevada. Quite a journey, again, to get to Green Bay. His long-term prognosis, probably just as a practice leg for the Packers. Uh, Mason Crosby is still on the physically unable to perform list. Gabe Burkich uh, was released after um, having a hamstring issue that caused a rough first preseason game. They just need somebody so they can go out and have special teams practice. Somebody's got to help the other two guys practice the field goal operation. Although it's kind of funny thinking about that field goal operation between Jack Coco, Pat O'Donnell, the punter, and now Ahmed, the kicker, there is a pretty good chance that two-thirds of the people in that operation are not going to be doing their jobs for week one in Green Bay. If the Packers try to make a move at long snapper, it's not going to be Coco. And presumably they're going to try to get Mason Crosby back before week one. Otherwise, you're going with a guy like Ahmed kicking meaningful field goals. And that's probably not what the Packers want. In any case, the Packers have survived their first round of roster cuts. And now we just wait for number two. That's not the big news this week. It is the big news on the NFL calendar, but as far as the Packers go, the big news on the injury front was getting three noteworthy guys off the physically unable to perform list. In order of interestingness, Christian Watson, Robert Tunyon, and Elton Jenkins all returned to practice this week. Starting with Watson, hey, nice to have. I think there's a pretty good chance that he can come along quickly in the offense, though he is certainly behind the eight ball right now. But just given the role that he is likely to play, he can probably get in the swing of things pretty quickly. It's going to be a lot of vertical stuff. It's going to be a lot of Marquez Valdez-Scantling type stuff. Although, again, to emphasize, he is not an, an MVS type player. There's a, there's a lot of other stuff he can do. Getting him on the field early is going to involve him doing that kind of thing because, shoot, he's a big, tall, fast receiver. Why wouldn't you send him deep? With Romeo Dubs coming along the way he has, I think the Packers can also afford to to bring Watson along a little bit more slowly, which is a great situation to have. Robert Tunyon is interesting in that he elevates his position group, I think, more than almost any other single player does on the Packers. The tight end group is pretty unremarkable even with him, but without him, they're almost entirely an afterthought. There's really nobody in that group who scares opposing defenses at all. When Mercedes Lewis does get open, it's basically by accident. Tanyan at least can win some one-on-one type matchups. That's what he brings to the Packers offense, and it's good to have him back out there. However, the crown jewel of the physically unable to perform list, at least as far as this week goes, is Elton Jenkins. It's truly almost inconceivable that he is back because he tore his ACL in November. Now he is, from all indications, on track to be in the lineup for week one. 
amazing. There's truly nothing Elton Jenkins can't do. If I start pro having problems around my house just with random stuff, I'm going to start calling him just to see if there, he has an opinion on it. I mean, it looks like he can do just about anything. You might as well, you, you might as well ask him. I mean, do you know anything about water heaters, Elton? We can just see. You want to take a look? You can fix everything else. I don't have any problems with my water heater yet, but you never know. Maybe there's something that I haven't even thought of that he can, he can just sort out for us. Jokes aside, with Elton Jenkins back on the field, the Packers and us can really start firming up that week one offensive line lineup. I think right now, this is what we've got. Left to right, you're starting with Yash Nyman at left tackle. If it's not David Bakhtiari, I'm still not entirely ruling out that possibility. It does become less likely by the day, but if it's not Bakhtiari, it'll be Yash Nyman at left tackle. He seems to have really settled in there based on what we've been seeing out of practice. Left guard, no big surprise, probably John Runyon Jr. At center, there's been real no, no real reason to consider anybody other than Josh Myers. Right guard seems to be the one that's up in the air right now. It's going to be one of Royce Newman, Zach Tom, or Jake Hansen. That seems to be the order of things right now. Hansen seems to have fallen off a little bit as the Packers have gone further into camp. Zach Tom and Royce Newman, I think, are, are fighting it out for the guard spot. They are both on the lighter side for a guard, especially given what the Packers have, have tended towards recently. Um, and I think that is that is worth monitoring whoever ends up getting the job. I think Newman probably has a slight leg up just being the incumbent for week one. But you could see a situation like Lane Taylor and Elton Jenkins from a couple years back where Tom takes over fairly early in the season. And then right tackle, it's probably going to be Elton Jenkins. I think that's best for him. That's best for the Packers. And he seems to have settled in there basically right away. So the Packers seem to be in really good shape on the offensive line. Certainly much better than they were a week ago. It just continues to be a work in progress. And I think until we get to the point where we know for sure what David Bakhtiari's status is for this season, it's going to continue to be a work in progress. And that's okay. Things can be a work in progress. You don't have to have everything figured out in September. The goal is to have everything figured out and clicking in January. So we got some time for getting there. That's probably why even last year I was slower to sound the alarm on David Bakhtiari than maybe was justified. And, and you know, it, there was obviously some extenuating circumstances behind the scene. As we've learned in time, there were some additional procedures going on there. But the point still stands. What a guy's health is in September is ultimately irrelevant compared to what his health is in January when you're trying to make the Super Bowl. The problem for David Bakhtiari last year wasn't that he wasn't ready for the Packers' week one loss in Jacksonville. The problem was that he wasn't around when the Packers were losing to the 49ers in the playoffs. Now, would he ultimately have made that big of a difference in that game? I don't really know, but having two bad tackles out there was certainly worse than just having one bad tackle out there and David Bakhtiari on the other side. So, yes, it is frustrating to not see him out there yet, we're trying to figure things out for further down the line. I want to recap preseason game one here in a second, but first I want to take a second and shout out three Patreon supporters today. The first one, I'm sorry if I, I ruin your name here. I am very grateful for your support. But uh, we're shouting out Nikhil Jaisingani, 
Jason Pakanowski and Bill Tesh, each of them supporters for quite a while now. And I'm very grateful for the support from each one of you. I just want to give another plug for our great online community springing up around the Power Sweep and Blue 58. If you choose to support us on Patreon, you have an exclusive invite to our patron-only Discord server. It's a great place to talk football from basically all year round. And you've got people from all around the world there talking football with you. Great place to be. I enjoy checking in there literally every single day. We've always got something going on. It's not always football related either, but it's a great group of people. and I would encourage you to become a part of it as well. Head to patreon.com slash the power sweep, chip in any monthly amount, and uh, we'll see you in the discord server. It's a, it's a great place to be. All right. Preseason game one. I understand now that as we record this, it is Tuesday You're going to be hearing it at the earliest on Wednesday, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time going point by point through the preseason game. Chances are you've already uh, digested a lot of content about this game already. I would like to talk about, what have I got, six players on the list here, Uh, Most all of whom I thought played pretty well, with one caveat in there, and we'll talk about him when we get to it. The first one I want to talk about is Romeo Dobbs. He was as advertised. Uh, it's been nothing but good things coming out about him in training camp. Sure, there was some growing pains out there. Uh, dropped a pass he should have caught that led to an interception. But shoot, I mean, he looks the part. He looks like he could play at the NFL level. I have no notes. I need I need to see nothing more from him before I'm ready for him to play in week one. I also really like seeing Tyler Goodson. And it was really satisfying to see his athleticism show up on the field at the NFL level the same way it did in college and also um, show up in a way that reflected his terrific testing numbers. Very quick to the outside, easiest, easily the fastest looking running back on the Packers roster. And his testing numbers suggest that he's easily the fastest anyway, but he just looks so fast with the ball in his hand. It's, it was cool to see him on the field. It was a little bit less smooth running inside versus outside, but speed that overpowering, if he can get to the corner, it really doesn't matter if he can't run inside anyway. Flipping over to defense, I was happy with what I saw from Jack Heflin. I've seen a couple other people disagree with that assessment. Uh, Some people weren't quite as high on him. I thought he looked more physically developed than he was last year. Uh, He looked stout at the point of attack on a couple of plays. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on during a preseason game. So if if I miss something there, that's that's fine. If you have a different take on Heflin, that's fine with me. Um, I thought he looked better. Also looking better was Shamar Jean Charles or John Charles, whichever pronunciation you like to go with there. He too, I thought, looked significantly further along physically than he was last year. He's always going to be a little bit on the slighter build side of things. But he looked um, more muscular, I thought, this year, uh, last Friday. Looked um, very competitive when the ball was in the air the one time it came his way. Um, it just looked solid. It just looked like he had a really solid performance. I also had um, was very pleased to see J.J. and Agbari basically pay, play exactly the way that we talked about him. He's, he looks like a gamer. And he, he's followed it up since with a couple of really solid practices. But uh, to the point that um, the Packers played last Friday night. He had had sort of a quiet camp. He looked like he belonged out there. And I think he'd have to be at least in the conversation right now for the Packers' fourth edge rusher position, and he could push higher. Uh, but a guy who was productive in college, 
um, ends up looking like he could play in the pros. Who'd have, who'd have thunk it? Finally, I think we ought to spend a couple minutes talking about Jordan Love. And I feel like we're kind of stuck talking about Jordan Love a lot. But that's just how things go when you have a former first-round pick who hasn't really been on the field on your roster. It has become clear to me that Jordan Love is a bit of a Rorschach test. You look at him, and it really is going to say more about you than about him when you evaluate his performance. Because I think to this point, people are basically dug in on their Jordan Love positions. There are no more Jordan Love takes available at the take store. Uh, Pretty much everybody has the takes that they're going to have at this point. I could kind of see it either way from Friday night. And I think we should make that case both ways. On the good side, I think you look at Jordan Love on Friday and say he was efficient enough. He got the Packers into the end zone. He played with more authority, made a couple really nice throws. His throw to Danny Davis, I thought, was the best throw I'd seen from him in his time in Green Bay so far, just because of what it takes as a quarterback to analyze the defense on the fly and to throw a ball that a guy has to come back and get on purpose That's a level of quarterback sophistication that we haven't really seen from Jordan Love yet. And overall, I thought he just looked confident in the operation of the offense. So if you are inclined to argue that Jordan Love is doing, is good and doing better, those are the sort of things that you might say. And I think there is some real merit to most or all of those things. There's also the bad side of things. Though he was better he was also inconsistent. Though it was improved from what we've seen in the past, the accuracy still was not his his strength. It was not as good as it should be. Though two of the interceptions that he threw were not necessarily his fault, one of them definitely was. And the pass that resulted in an interception after Romeo Dubs couldn't haul in the ball wouldn't have been picked off with a better throw. There are legitimate criticisms of Jordan Love's performance from last week, too. Even if you're inclined to think everything was hunky-dory overall, I don't think you can dismiss some of the negative aspects either. If you ask me which way I lean, I would say he did look better, but I lean a little bit more toward the it wasn't that great side of things, and here's why. The big reason for me is that all the praise for love still seems like we're grading on a curve. Jordan Love was drafted as a developmental quarterback. Everyone knew that when he was taken. He was not the sort of quarterback where you say, we're going to take him, we're going to start him early in the season, if not week one, and we're just going to go. Even if he was drafted to a team other than the Packers, that probably would have been the reality for Love. He was going to need some time. So year one, you talk about him like he's a developmental prospect. Year two, people still talked about him like he was a developmental prospect, and that was fair 
because he hadn't had a real preseason as a rookie. His offseason was trash just because of all the stuff going on with COVID. Okay, we can grade a little bit on a curve. But here we are in year three. When does it stop? When do we get to talk about Jordan Love for what he is right now than the process that he's going through to become something else? Because the hope is that he's going to be good someday. But if he's not good right now, when do we get to start talking about that? And maybe you say, yeah, he is good right now. Okay. I don't think, even if you think he was great on Friday, I don't think there is enough evidence to say, yes, absolutely, Jordan Love is a starting quality, starting caliber quarterback right now. He's still on that developmental timeline. And in year three, when do we get to stop about talking about him developing and just start talking about what he is? Because in year three, you start having to talk about, like we, we've discussed in the not-too-recent past here, fifth-year options and post-Aaron Rodgers' life. When do we stop talking about the projections and just talking about whether or not Jordan Love can do the job? I think the best way, though, to look at this is to think about the Jordan Love take situation this way. What would it take to convince you to take up the opposite stance of what you have right now? What evidence would you need to see to change your mind on Jordan Love? This, I think, is a good question to ask as you have discussions of any sort with someone who disagrees with you. Just before you get too far down the road, ask them, what would it get, what would it take to change your mind? This is a good way to talk about, talk to people who are really hardcore into some certain conspiracy theories. Um, because very quickly you'll realize that it's not worth it talking to them because there's no evidence that could change their mind. And I think a responsible thing to do as a thinking person is even if you're fairly certain on a position to be willing to think through what evidence it would take to change your mind. So let's talk through that just for a second. Say you're of the mindset that Jordan Love wasn't great last Friday night. What evidence would it take to change your mind? For me, if I'm in that camp, and I, I think I lean that way, I would ask for more consistency down to down, especially on short routes. I think if you looked at a lot of the out routes that he threw, a lot of the, the short, flat routes, it wasn't great. Uh, it was inconsistent, and it was, it was an adventure sometimes. I would also like to see one really dominant performance. I would like to see a game where Jordan Love just really gets out and rips it. Just shows, look at me, I'm a first-round pick. I do have that Patrick Mahomes arm talent that everybody talks about. I want to see a few big-time throws. I want to see Jordan Love really say, I'm here, this is what I can do. Watch me throw a monster deep ball to Christian Watson. Watch me put one on right between the 8 and the 7 to Romeo Dubs on a cross-field out route. Watch me sneak one in between a couple defenders, just really lighten it up. I would love to see that. Or if we can't get that, I would love to have a game where you don't have to explain things away for Jordan Love. 
I don't want to have a Chiefs game where you can say, well, they were trying to run the Aaron Rodgers offense with Jordan Love. Because while that's true, it's not helpful. I don't want to have a Detroit Lions game where you're saying, well, it was a meaningless game he was playing with all backups. Because while that's true, it again is not helpful in your evaluation. I don't want to have a game where you have the head coach of the Packers standing up at the podium after the game saying, well, I mean, those picks weren't really his fault. Because again, while that is true, it does not necessarily add very much to our overall understanding of Jordan Love. I just want to ha- him to have a game where you say, this is Jordan Love. We didn't have any extenuating circumstances around Jordan Love. This is just, this was the Love experience. Say on the other side that you were convinced that Jordan Love had a very good performance on Friday night. And again, I can, I can be sympathetic to that viewpoint, even if I don't share it myself. I would have to imagine, though, that if you are open to the possibility that you're wrong about last Friday night, if you think he played well, that you would have to see probably a couple bad performances in a row. You would have to see maybe him not play well the next two preseason games and play really badly. This one was a lot tougher, I'll have to admit, than than the bad case because it's harder to come up with evidence that evidence of a negative thing. Because you want to see the good, especially if you're invested in his success, if you really believe in Jordan Love. It's hard to talk yourself out of a guy being good if you were already convinced that he was good. On top of the couple bad performances in a row, I would love to see, or I would probably have to see if I was convinced that Love was the answer post-Rodgers, I would need to see a lot more public complaining from the head coach. One of the stronger arguments, I think, for Jordan Love, at least as it pertains to the last Friday night, is that Matt LaFleur didn't seem overly concerned. If you are bothered by the picks, that's one thing. You're a little bit alone because Matt LaFleur isn't there with you, which matters a lot. You understand in general, though, why Matt LaFleur might be hesitant to criticize Jordan Love. For starters, he is coming along. He's a young player. He's developing. But on top of that, Matt LaFleur has a really good reason to not be super concerned about Jordan Love, and that reason is named Aaron Rodgers. As long as LaFleur has Aaron Rodgers... How worried is he really going to be about Jordan Love? If Rodgers plays well this season and next, and the Packers win a Super Bowl in one of those two years, or maybe both, it doesn't matter for LaFleur's long-term career how Jordan Love pans out, because rings, baby, he's got one, maybe two. And if Jordan Love ends up being good after that, so much the better. But he cares right now whether or not Aaron Rodgers is, is good. So you understand why you may not get a ton of public criticism from LaFleur on Love. But I would have to imagine if you were inclined to believe that Love has been really good, if if, if LaFleur got up and gave some really pointed criticism of Love, you'd have, to at least, you'd have to at least think about it a little bit differently. I don't really have a firm ending for this segment. I just want to remind all of us, maybe maybe me most of all, that even if you're convinced of one thing, pretty firmly, you should at least be open to the idea of changing your mind on that. That's something that I am always going to need to work on. Maybe it's something that you and I can work on together as we work to become smarter Packers fans. That's all I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate listening in. 
I would appreciate it even more if you would take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's going to get more people involved in this conversation about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, once again, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.